Now, last week we read John chapter 11, which is a significant turning point in the Gospel of John. After what seemed like a miscalculated delay, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It turns out that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing all along. And he did it that way in order that the people around him may believe that God had sent him. But as impressive as the raising of Lazarus was, our eternal hope comes from a different resurrection. Our eternal hope comes from the resurrection of Jesus himself. Because Jesus died on the cross, and because Jesus rose from the dead, believers like us look forward to the day when we too will rise from the dead. That is our hope. But in the context of John's gospel, this resurrection of Lazarus is the final straw for the religious leaders who oppose Jesus. We saw the stage set last week in chapter 11, verses 55 through 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. These two chapters, John 11 last week and John 12 this week, are transitional chapters in the story that we're reading. By the time that we're done today, Jesus' public ministry will have essentially come to an end in John's account. And from this point forward, almost all of Jesus' words are spoken directly to his disciples. That's why for generations, commentators and Bible scholars have referred to the first half of the Gospel of John as the book of signs. That's where all the miracles occur. That's where all the signs happen. But that means the second half is referred to as the book of glory. We'll see why it's called the book of glory over the next several weeks. But as we finish this transitional chapter today, we're going to see Jesus speaking in ways that he hasn't spoken yet in this gospel. And we find the religious leaders more on edge, more desperate than they ever have been before. The tension is quickly rising. And throughout this entire chapter, you'll notice a theme emerge. And that theme is a heightened, ratcheted up sense of urgency, especially from Jesus himself. So open your Bibles to John chapter 12, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you need to, and take a Bible home with you if you don't have one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you give to us, the material blessings that you've given us, that we have daily bread, that we have clothes on our back, and we have shelter over our heads, and we have water to drink. But thank you for the gifts of your grace, uh, the gifts of your church, and the gifts of your Holy Spirit, and the gift of your Son, um, and the gift of your Word that we read today. I pray that we would approach your Word with great humility, approach your Word with great joy, that we would understand what a privilege we have to open your word, that you want to communicate with us, that you have things to say to us. So, Father, I pray that we would not just examine your word today, 
but that we would let your word examine us appropriately. Father, thank you for the time we have to sing and pray and take communion and hear from John chapter 12. I pray that what we do here this morning would be beneficial to those in this room and in this building, but I also pray that this would bring you honor and bring you glory. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. As we start out this morning, we see Mary, Lazarus' sister, worshiping Jesus. We saw a brief preview of this at the beginning of chapter 11. But as they sit around eating a meal, Mary suddenly pours a large amount of ointment or perfume On Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair was a particularly humble showing of worship on her part. But in addition to being humble, this act of worship from Mary, pouring all that perfume on Jesus, that is wildly impractical. That's what Judas points out. That ointment was worth a lot of money, and he appraises it to be worth a year's salary. Think about all the poor people that could have fed, and Mary uses it all on this? It's also worth noting that this story has some things in common with the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Jesus being anointed, but these stories may or may not be related. But more than looking at the perfume, more than even looking at Mary... Focus on what Jesus says in response. Jesus rebukes Judas's less than genuine criticism of Mary. Again, he doesn't really care about the poor. But then Jesus begins speaking about himself. He interprets Mary's act of worship as preparation for his burial. But then he also says that they will not always have him, which certainly seems to imply that He's not going to be around for much longer. Now, Jesus has alluded to his death before. He said a few chapters ago that he would lay down his life for his sheep. But these words just seem a little bit more ominous. It just seems a little more dark. And Jesus' death might be a little more imminent. Continue in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there... They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So Jesus enters Jerusalem to a royal welcome. People are singing, people are celebrating, waving palm branches. They're calling him the king of Israel. They're saying, Hosanna, which means, God, please save us. Jesus is getting the kind of treatment that a victorious king would receive fresh off of a successful battle. And Jesus doesn't outright reject the singing. He doesn't outright reject the celebration from the crowds. But he also doesn't look the part of your typical king. How many kings have you seen riding on donkeys? Not many. But there's one group that, predictably, is not as enthusiastic about Jesus' arrival. That, of course, is the religious leaders. From where they're sitting, Jesus' rogue, illegitimate religious movement has all the momentum. The news about Lazarus rising from the dead really must have gotten around. Because people are coming from everywhere. As a result, they are more desperate than ever to put a stop to this movement. Even if that means killing Lazarus, too. Because after all, you got to get rid of the evidence. And we start to see our theme yet again. That theme of urgency. Especially in their words in verse 19. The religious leaders recognize that if they don't put an end to this quickly... It's going to be too late. The whole world is going after Jesus. So things appear to be at a boiling point. Jesus is on top of the world, while his opposition is losing ground at every passing second. So the question is, well, how will Jesus handle this? How is he going to utilize all this newfound momentum to his advantage? Well, look at what he does in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. The Pharisees weren't kidding when they said that the whole world is going after him. That includes the Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, people from all over are coming to see Jesus. But instead of healing someone like he's done before, instead of raising someone from the dead like he's done before, Instead of dropping some sick burns against the religious leaders like he's done before, Jesus yet again utters some ominous words. Specifically, look at his words in verse 23. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now think about it. Over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly said that his hour or his time had not yet come. We see it in chapter 2, twice in chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8. But in chapter 12, after all of those denials, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, we see Jesus say that the time has finally arrived. That's why we notice a much greater sense of urgency in Jesus' words. He knows that death is knocking on the door. He knows that there is a cross in Jerusalem with his name on it. He knows that he is not going to leave town alive. But Jesus also says that his death will bear much fruit. And because his death is approaching, because his time is short, because his hour has finally arrived, Jesus tells his disciples and tells everyone else around him that now is a time for choosing. Take your pick. Do you want to focus on this life or eternal life? Will you serve me? Will you follow me? I won't be with you much longer, so now's the time to decide. You can't help but think of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. He says there, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The time of choosing is at hand. We see Jesus laying down the gauntlet with his disciples, telling them that they have to make a choice. What do you think they'll decide? Continue in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said... An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Like we talked about, kings don't ride on donkeys, and messiahs don't, ride, don't die on crosses. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. The transfiguration and Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane are two big events that happen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but don't occur in the Gospel of John. But the passage that we just read seems to be pretty similar to both of those events. In the transfiguration, Jesus goes on top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he is transformed before their eyes. God speaks from heaven. They can't believe what they're seeing. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in spite of his fear, Jesus obeys God by embracing his coming death on the cross. We see similarities in this passage. And after all, as Jesus says, this cross, this death, it's the whole purpose for which he has come. For Jesus, anything other than willingly going to the cross, anything else would be an act of rebellion against God, an act of insurrection against his father, an act of disobedience against God. But then Jesus indicates that several things are going to come as a result of his death. His death won't be some tragic, pointless accident. Like he said, when wheat falls to the ground, it bears much fruit. In the same way, his death will bear much fruit. When he dies, Jesus says, God's name will be glorified. When he dies, Jesus says that the ruler of this earth will be cast out. Satan will be defeated. And he says that all men, Jews, Greeks, Samaritans, like we read earlier in the book, countless others, they will be drawn to Jesus. Now you hear that and you think, well, how in the world would Jesus dying a brutal, shameful death, how could that possibly bring God glory? And how in the world does Jesus dying on the cross signal Satan's defeat. It seems to signal the exact opposite. And who in the world would be drawn to a religious leader failed and executed outside of town like a criminal? What's attractive about that? Everything that Jesus says his death will lead to, it seems contrary to conventional wisdom. But how this will all happen and how this will all make sense only becomes apparent Later in the story, only becomes apparent when there is an empty tomb, only becomes apparent when Jesus is proclaimed and shown to be victorious over death itself. But for the time being, Jesus urgently presents this moment as a time for choosing. Will you walk in light or will you walk in darkness? Will you believe Or will you not believe? Now, as we've seen so many times in the Gospel of John, for many, the answer to that question will be no. They won't believe. Now, this comes as no surprise to God. It's simply the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah's words long before Jesus was born. God told Isaiah and prophets like him that from the very get-go, the overwhelming majority of your audience... The overwhelming majority of God's people, 
wouldn't listen to them. Now, that doesn't mean that God has somehow failed. It doesn't mean that the prophets failed. It doesn't mean that Jesus failed. If only they had performed more miracles, maybe more people would have believed. If only they were better preachers, maybe more people would have believed. No, that's not how it works. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And those who God draws to Jesus will respond appropriately. But at the same time, make no mistake. Those who willingly reject Jesus will be held responsible for their choosing. And they will invite God's judgment. And even worse than not believing at all are the religious leaders we see in verses 42 and 43. You have to wonder if maybe a guy by the name of Nicodemus would be included in that group. Secretly, these religious leaders believe, but they don't believe enough to risk their positions of power. They don't believe enough to put themselves in any type of danger. Now, times have changed since Jesus said everything we've read today. Jesus told his audience in John 12 that his death was approaching. But to us, his death occurred 2,000 years ago. To his disciples, he predicted that his resurrection would happen. But to us, that's already occurred too. Every single person that Jesus made demands of in the Gospel of John his own disciples, the religious leaders, the crowds. They've all heard the message, they've all made a choice, and they've all died. But even though we're on the other side of the crucifixion, the other side of the resurrection, the same sense of urgency remains. It remains for us to make a choice. Two unavoidable reasons make it so urgent. The first one is the reality of death. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5 say, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And in the New Testament, James writes, You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Many of us don't need scripture to acknowledge fleeting life is, because we've seen plenty of examples on our own of how suddenly life can end. You may sit here and try to convince yourself that you're invincible, but deep down, you know it's a lie. You might tell yourself that once death comes, that's the end for you. That's it. But what if you're wrong? The inevitability and the suddenness of death means that Jesus' words are just as urgent as ever. That we too are at a point of decision. We too rest in a time of choosing. So the reality of death is one thing that makes belief so urgent, makes Jesus' words so important. But the other thing that makes this time so urgent 
is Christ's return. Or in the words of theologian Johnny Cash, when the man comes around, when Christ returns. Jesus talked about this plenty of times. Matthew 24 and 25 are filled with it, but one of the most important parables is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But Jesus answered, excuse me, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1, he writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. Sounds like Jesus in John 12. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Again, the time for choosing is at hand. Because unless you die before it happens, you will see the return of Christ. And for those who believe, the return of Christ is a time of deliverance and a time of joy. But for those who don't, it's a time of judgment and a time of dread. The point is that we live in a time between the times. We live after the incarnation, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and after the ascension. But we live before Christ's return. Our sense of urgency doesn't come because Jesus is about to go away, like in John 12. Our sense of urgency comes because he could come at any moment. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven once and for all. And the question is, will we be a part of that kingdom? So make no mistake, while the times have changed, circumstances are different than the figures in John's gospel. The sense of urgency remains the same. Eternal life was at stake for them. And eternal life is at stake for us. Look one more time at verses 25 and 26 of John 12. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then verses 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. But while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. In the same way that Jesus asked people questions, that Jesus laid choices before them and demanded that they respond, the same thing is happening to us every single day. We're having questions that demand an answer laid before us. We are being asked to choose. The time of urgency remains. So will we choose to focus entirely on this life or the next? Will you serve and follow Jesus, or will you serve and follow yourself? Will you walk in light, or will you walk in darkness? Will you become a child of God, or will you remain an enemy of God? We all know far too well that tomorrow could bring something we don't expect. The time for choosing is now. And I pray that every single one of us would recognize the urgency of Jesus' words and that every single one of us would respond rightly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even when it's challenging, even when it's in your face, even when it makes demands of us that seem maybe even overwhelming. It's hard to wrap our minds around the thought that eternal life is at stake, but that's why you give us your word, and that's why you pour out your spirit to help us understand when the stakes like this are so high. Father, most of us in this room have responded to Christ already, whether it was a week ago or a year ago or 50 years ago. Most of us have made decisions that we want to follow your son, that we want to be your children, that we want to be a part of your kingdom. But not necessarily all of us have made that decision. I pray that we would recognize the sense of urgency. Thank you for laying these choices ahead of us, not leaving us to ourselves, not leaving us stuck in our own rut of death and sin and rebellion. Thank you for sending your son. I pray that we as individuals and we as a church would respond rightly to the choices that you have laid before us. I pray that we would serve you and follow you. I pray that we would be willing to lose this life if it means gaining eternal life. Thank you for your son who, in the weeks ahead in the Gospel of John, will willingly go to a cross, will willingly suffer, will willingly die for sinners like us. I pray that would never lose its power, that would never cease to amaze us and humble us and convict us, but also give us the greatest joy that we could ever have. We love you, we praise you, we thank you for Christ.
We ask all these things in his name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song, and then in just a few moments we'll be taking communion. At the end of our service, we hope that you'll talk to our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. But I'll turn it over to Mark and Amy, and they'll lead us in worship.